0: Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up, in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Before we kick off today's episode, I wanted to share a new offering for our Rad community. One of the most common questions I get is, "Kay, I've read the newsletters, blog, and listened to the podcast religiously. I'm ready to start the process of self-discovery, but I can't do this on my own." Rest assured, we got you, and we've added a new page on our website featuring a curated group of teachers and coaches. Whether you're stuck, committed to inquiry, but don't know where to begin, or just need help getting out of your own way, these coaches would all be great partners and are trusted members of the community. To learn more about our Rad Coaches, visit rad.family slash coaching. Again, that's rad.family slash coaching. See you soon. My happy place is interviewing a high energy meditator who's not afraid to drop an F-bomb. Jeff Horn is a meditation teacher and the co author of the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with Dan Harris, who hosts Good Morning America. Jeff's got a background in neuroscience, and we jump straight into the deep end of the emotional pool. We talk a lot about mental health issues, Jeff's longtime struggle with ADD, and how it still impacts his sense of self and belonging. Yep, he's a meditator whose ADD can get the best of him. The best part about this conversation is that it's applicable to both our work and personal lives. We talk about the daunting long game of meditation. How do you get behind a practice that seemingly has no end date? And if you've ever read Sapiens, we talk about how the stories around us can shape our reality, even though they might be made up in our own heads. But meditation is one of those small habits that unquestionably improves our happiness and stops that endless and draining mental chatter. As you'll hear, Jeff's all about living life full tilt. I know you'll enjoy my conversation with Jeff Warren, and I'm sorry about all the swearing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. I am joined with Jeff Warren today. How's it going, Jeff?
1: It's going well, Kane. Nice to meet you.
0: I always get excited with a fellow meditator, especially one like you, one as experienced as you. So thanks for joining us today.
1: Of course, it's my pleasure, man.
0: I wanted to start. Your co-author, Dan Harris, in your new book on meditation, mentioned you were talking about your childhood, and at one point you mentioned your parents keeping you on a leash. So I figured, <laughs> like, let's let's kick off with a childhood story along that vein. Yeah, I mean, I was a feral kid, you know,
1: very hyperactive, ADD and a real handful for my folks, you know, and they, I just, I couldn't really regulate myself and I had insane amounts of energy. I'm sure like a lot of people can relate. And my parents had the point where they actually had to, I mean, back then they had these harness things for kids. I don't know if they have them now, but there's actual footage I've seen of me going to the zoo. Actually, the footage is this nice little girl walking along and then there's this flurry of activity in the corner of the screen and this like little like psychotic boy comes <laughs> charging into the picture and then gets yanked back by this leather strap and falls back and then starts running again and that was me. That was my MO back then. And you know, it's something I still struggle with, the energy thing. Spikes of tons of kind of ferocity of and energy and activity shooting through me that I don't know how to manage the energy, you know. And also too much energy in the system is often contributes to lots of scattered thinking, thinking in all directions, you know, anxieties, worries. So, I was a neurotic little kid and I'm a neurotic adult. And I'm a neurotic meditation teacher, I guess you could say.
0: Well, you'll be happy to know that those leashes still exist. They're a little cuter now. You said leather, and I was like, whoa. But they have like monkeys on them, they're like turned into backpacks and stuff. So, they're definitely still out there. How do you remember the interaction with your folks around this abundance of energy?
1: what i mostly remember is well to be honest is their frustration and their challenges with it i i was just constantly in trouble you know you're always breaking stuff and like getting disinhibited and like smacking my brother in the face and doing whatever so i just remember being constantly in trouble and the message i got even though my parents love me deeply the message i got was how you are is weird and a problem and you need to find a way to regulate yourself, I guess. But I didn't, I mean, no one ever said that. And I didn't have the language to, to, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that to myself. But that was sort of the message. I mean, since we're going here. And because of that, I had a lot of stuff around self-esteem stuff. Feeling like I was just letting people down. And that I had to kind of make it up to people all the time. Because I was kind of a bit of a disappointment <laughs> in these different ways. I kind of internalized that message the way kids do. And then it wasn't until later that I became a meditator and around that I started to understand how that shapes your experience, how it starts to shape your relationships. You know, you kind of bring those implicit structures and biases and attitudes, the stuff that's in there, you bring it, to, you bring it out to all your relationships. The main thing is you start, what happened with me is I, I, I never, I didn't have the secure attachment stuff where you learn to just know that you're okay in the world and that you belong here, kind of basic level stuff and so you're always looking externally for to find that belonging. You think you need to prove it. You think you need to earn it. You need to, you need to do it. So you got to work harder. You got to be a good boy. You got to be a good girl. You got to be say the right things. You got to so you're constantly managing your personality as opposed to just really being who you are. You know, and in a way it develops this you, you develop this kind of contortion. I sometimes I think of it as like were these trees that just want to go straight? But we get all these messages from our environment that now nah, we don't like trees that look like that. Or we don't like the, this part of your brand. Or, we don't like this kind of thing. So you start to make all these little adjustments in your growth. So you, start like a, you turn into like a gnarled old jack pine. You know, these naughty kind of gnarled over on your side and stretched in one position. And your head turned around this way. And your body is kind of this grotesque thing. Like you're meaning the, the, way, the way you present to the world. Because you're just, you just internalized all these injunctions. So a big part of waking up both in a, in a psychotherapeutic context and in a meditative context is beginning to actually say, "Fuck that. <laughs> this is who I really am. And actually, what do you find when you start to own up to who you really are when you start to, people actually like you more because people didn't like this because before you were kind of being dishonest. you know there was a little bit you were kind of being a bit of a weasel, even though you, if you didn't know it because you weren't really speaking your truth, you were just going to, you're, you're always trying to say what other you other people wanted to hear.
0: Yeah. Wow. Well, first, if you saw my arms, I have like insane chills, just an appreciation of your, we're eight minutes in and, and you just, you know, the theme in, in all your writing and your talks that I've listened to is the deep end. And so like, let's not fuck around in the kiddie side of the pool. <laughs> let's just dive right in. Which is why I know this is gonna be fun. But also There's a level
1: even deeper than
0: that. <laughs> I got my scuba gear. But also, you know, it really relates, it resonates to these ideas of belonging and acceptance that I always hear from from others around this narrative, this false narrative that, that people say, Well well, I grew up middle class, privileged, you know, white, Asian, male. And so really, the world was just handed to me. So any problem that I have is just like first world problems. Biggest bunch of bullshit ever. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I, I agree. I totally agree. I have to fight that that narrative myself as well because you know in in the in the work that i've been doing now which is really like we said earlier i've I've never it's only been three years that i've really stepped deeply and and thought deeply about who i am and who my insecurities are but then as i go and share that as a blogger as a podcaster and all that like people just google me and they're, they're like meet the wall street guru and it's like fuck like yeah like I made a lot of money on Wall Street, and so now I have the like. Who am I? There's like two angles. You're like, who are you to tell us about your problems? That's one. The second is, well, you made the money, and now you can think about the problems. And honestly, that really, really makes me feel insecure. And again, I'm not apples to apples it with what you just shared in any way. But but it's just this thing that that's like I'm not allowed to be suffering because you know, I'm very comfortable financially.
1: Yeah, well, maybe say let me say something about that. I guess the way I think of it is there's external conditions and there's internal conditions. And we're a very externally focused culture. So we look at the externals. And there is no question those externals are absolutely stacked with privilege. There are if you are, you know, you're born a white upper, upper middle class male, you're going to, you have bequeathed to you a huge amount of privileges, not just white, whatever, but there's, you know, there are, those privileges are real. And there's real work in trying to create a more level playing field, you know, across the planet. But there's also internal conditions. And sometimes, as someone who has a lot of challenges with ADHD, with mood regulation, with certain things, these challenges are happening irregardless of what's going on externally. I And that was extremely hard for me to handle because it was like, I had to understand because I had so much shame. Why couldn't I just get my shit together? And I got the exact message from you. My parents were like, look, there's real problems. People are starving in Africa, all these things. My parents are all, my mom especially, big into sort of social justice issues and like charity stuff. And I completely agree that those are huge problems. But I had all these internal problems where I couldn't regulate my emotions. I couldn't, like I had a ton of suffering. I had all this stuff going on. And because I didn't have any external reason for it, like I had a loving family, I had I wasn't comfortable background. It was just pure shame for me. Like I felt like I didn't. And so what happens then? Let's just explore what happens. You have that response. So you're, you're in pain. You're because for whatever reason. Now the pain, the suffering causes you to contract to, to relate to people in this, either in a rigid way, or you're, you're trying too hard or you're, or you become, you have all these angry anger and fear in you. That's distorting the relationships. You start to spread out those dynamics to the people around you. You're less effective at actually getting your work done. You're less effective at meeting those real external challenges of the world. So, you know, the thing to realize is the inner game, the inner game of learning how to be more honest, more vulnerable, more centered in who you are equals the outer game. Eventually, it begins to overflow into the outer world and it creates more effectiveness at being able to address those challenges. So, so stuffing it down and just being a man and not complaining and just shooting ahead and doing your work. Like a lot of my friends are activists and caregivers. That's sort of my—that's the culture I'm in. That is great maybe at first, but after a while you start to realize that you're getting burned out and you're bringing all your own distortions and aggressions to the work that you're doing, and you're actually just spreading around more pain, more screwed-up stuff. So until you start to look at your own shit and start to actually be an adult enough to own them to own it to stand up to it it's only it's only through that process that that you're going to be the most effective at, at giving back and changing those external conditions
0: i guess the phrase that i use is trickle down compassion in the sense that if you have your inner inner game inner shit fuck it like this is going to be a high swearing podcast like i bring that home to my family when my shit's not together I take it out, I'll just scream at my child, my three-year-old, for no reason. And that's because something in that mess of like work and stress and expectations and things that I haven't figured out and and anxiety and comparison, it's like something triggered me and I just yelled at a three-year-old for no fucking reason. And so I guess I've seen it in myself a few ways. At first, I didn't even notice it. Right before all this exploration started, I didn't even know it happened. I was just like, oh, I just had a bad day, you know, like let me pour myself a drink. And then now I see it, but I'm still not happy about it. So I, I would like beat myself up about it. And now I just see it. And then it it prompts further inquiry as to like, well, what is that thing? And it's funny for me. And, and I won't bore my listeners to this, but it always comes down to for me personally, this like fear of my own death everything comes down to that fear. And it's like, have I achieved enough? Have I made enough money? Like, how will people people remember me? So when I'm freaking out at my daughter because she's like keeping me up past my bedtime, what I'm really saying is like, she kept you up. You couldn't do your work. Because you didn't do your work, you're not going to make this dollar. Because you didn't make this dollar, like people will think you suck and you're going to die and everyone will forget you like the minute you're gone. You know, and, and and I can catch that. I think in, in your books, you guys talk about this spiral of negative thoughts. How I just can just can consume. I think you said like "Welcome to the party" is one of the, the phrases that you use. But yeah, that that's how, how it has impacted me. What do you think of that?
1: Well, it sounds familiar. <laughs> you know, I, I have a lot of empathy for it because I go there too. You know, it's like you know. I think there's there's different different people have different ways of talking about what's really going on in the root, and I think it's probably different for different people. But a lot of it is around control. You know, you're trying to control your experience because you feel fundamentally that you're unsafe, that you're going to die, that, you know, time is running out, whatever it is. And so you try to hold on tight to how things are. But the world is constantly changing. So it's a hopeless task. And you get more and more frustrated around doing that. And so it starts to come out as this low level reactivity, chronic anger, lashing out, you know. And there comes a time when you need to, that really starts to affect people around you and you, know, and then you, and you need to actually begin to change the momentum of that. Because, the, I mean, the brutal truth is, Aristotle had a great line, you say, you are what you repeatedly do, and that is the brutal truth of being a human being. The moment you're born, you are practicing your own existence. The way in which you are existing is a training. The way in which you're existing is building up certain qualities just by virtue of being here. So if, you, if, in a, if you're learning how to be more concentrated in life, then you're building up that capacity to be concentrated. You know, if you're learning how to get angry and then get a little bit more angry every time, a little bit more ang- angry every time, it just gets more. So I guess what I'm saying, it's like it also increases. It never stays the same. Whatever pattern you repeat gets deeper with every, every cycle. So we're sitting here inside these repertoires that we're, we don't even know we're in, where we're building up the these habits that are actually creating unhappiness in us and the people around us. So I think of practice as the moment when you decide to start building up different habits. You know, you're like, okay, it stops here. I have to be compassionate with myself because it's going to take a while to reverse this momentum. And you're not trying to undo who you are. You're trying to undo some of the habits that are creating the most suffering. So you start to practice a different different responses you know you start to practice and that's what you know a sitting meditation is basically just the gym it's in a simple culture where you get to practice existing but more deliberately and then you try to bring it out into life and and that's where the real rubber hits the road and it's not just seated meditation that does this any practice I'm really interested in the big picture of practice like you know movement practices sports practices relational practices art practices you know these are all I mean, all of these, they're all practices. It's just about knowing what the skills are that you're building, that you're rehearsing. And that's what's gonna point you to what kind of person you're gonna be and what kind of, what kind of existence you're gonna have, more like what qualities of existence you're gonna have related to your life.
0: I remember hearing you talk about, they're like deepened ridges. You know, like a track or something, and you yeah. keep going down that path with your your bike or your motorcycle, and they just harden and deepen, and they become like like the quote you said. They just become a part of you. I mean, you don't have to convince me about the importance of the practice, but I guess th- this is one thing that I, that I do want to ask you is that you and and other teachers have make made it very clear that there's no end game. <laughs> And I'm in my third year of my meditation practice, and 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 I feel it. I feel like I'm in the first like pitch of the game, you know. And and that's even the wrong construct because there is no no end game. One question is like people look at that, and there's it's so daunting. There's like I have to do this thing that's really hard. The benefits will are will not clearly accrue to me. And by the way. I, own, I have to keep doing this for the rest of my life. <laughs> What's the totally. fucking point? Like can I just like take the edge off by drinking a few stiff drinks when I come home from work?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. What a awesome. You you put that so well. And some teachers will say there is an end game. There's a place in which you can kind of break through and in fact i would say that there's a place when you can it's like a hockey stick you know it, it's a it's a slow increase at first you know it takes a while it takes a while it takes a while you're working working and then there's a point where basically you go hockey stick as my teacher shins would say which is that you just suddenly hit a point of no return where the practice starts doing you and then it just shoots up an exponential gradient so it accelerates so it's not true that it's just a, a slog the whole life it's a slog at the beginning and then there can be a, there's a place often where it where it shifts, and we can talk more about that in a bit. But even to even in a more fundamental way, I think meditation can be both seen as work, as a slog, and sometimes it is, as this hard training. It can also be seen as this very joyous exploration. It's super interesting. You're learning about who you are and how you are. And, and even more fundamentally than that, is because this is the real deep end, as you go into a practice, you start to learn about the, how your mind seems to map onto reality, how you are connected to all this shit around you. And every contemplative says it, it's the same thing again and again, that there's like this sort of like surface part of you, your personality that's like that you think is the thing that's the most real. But underneath that, you're, there's a, a sense of intimacy and connection that is so vivid and so real with the world and so incredibly interesting to explore. There's nothing that I would want to explore more. You know, and some people have this from the beginning. They have the hair on fire. They really are motivated to understand this. For others, it's like, okay, that sounds like a bunch of weird mystical stuff. I'm more into practically addressing my stress. That's cool too. But you can do both at once. You can address your stress with a quality of curiosity and investigation And if you know, if if you have a framework for understanding some of the experiences that you have, you can begin to accelerate that development in a really interesting way. So I guess the thing is, yes, it's your whole life. Your life is a practice. You know, I'm sorry, you're here. You were born. It's done. (laughs) Now it's about making the best of it. And you can just, and you have the attitude like, oh God, this is a slog. Or you can be like, you know what? Sometimes it's going to be hard and I have compassion for me and for others about that. But it's pretty interesting too. And it's pretty... It's like, it's weird how this works. It's it's cool how this works. It's amazing that I can create these insights, these shifts in myself. That, and as I do, I can learn more and more about what seems to be more fundamental about how other people are around me. And what a privilege to be doing it in the first place. All that stuff is there.
0: In your practice, do you remember where it kind of tipped or step functioned away from being more of a kind of pragmatic stress relief type approach, and that's assuming a lot because I don't know the history of your practice, to one of more mysticism, wonder, and curiosity?
1: Yeah, I remember
0: roughly when it went
1: hockey stick, you know, when the practice started to take me, and I can talk about that. You know, I was always a very bad meditator. I was very distractible and agitated and skeptical. And, you know, I came from science. I, my first book, The Head Trip, was really all about the neuroscience of waking, sleeping, and dreaming. And But I had a chapter in there in meditation, so I figured I should do it. I was motivated by curiosity from the beginning because I was interested in the mind. Now I know, having I understand that my interest in the science of consciousness and all that was really... A deeper spiritual interest. I just didn't have the words to call it that. I didn't have any vocabulary for spirituality. I, I was interested, but I was interested in those questions, those philosophical questions, and so I had the curiosity. What I didn't have was any kind of useful output. I didn't have any. I didn't. I had just experiences of being super distractible and and being in pain and feeling like it wasn't working and feeling like a loser. <laughs> and so there was the first set of shifts that happened, were which were just around accepting that that was going to be part of my experience and, and learning about the skills. And as I just worked you know, and persevered at it and it wasn't too hard, I started to get breakthroughs. I started to see what they were talking about. I started to feel the, this more, more ease and things like that. And I started to have dramatic experiences where, you know, I, I mean, not dramatic in like some kind of super psychedelic thing, although I have had those too, but more like I just suddenly my entire inner dialogue would just completely... I describe it as like the sound of the fridge going off. You didn't even know the sound was there all that time, the hum of the fridge in the, in the kitchen. And then suddenly it goes off and the silence is so rich. It's almost a presence in itself. And having those experiences, my internal world, just completely cutting out and in, in that space, being able to just see so much more about the character of the people around them. Realizing that there was no fear in the way I was holding myself, that before all this time, there had been this tiny little struggle of like, I want to be liked, I don't want to be liked, I want to be liked, I don't want to be liked, I want this to happen, I don't want this to happen. This endless little s- friction and negotiation and fighting with the with my experience, it just would bottom out. And I was just present for what was going on around me. I was, I was just not all about me. And what a relief it was to just get a break for myself, <laughs> you know. So those happened, you know, those were happening within, you know, I, I practiced. I went, I just, I would go to a few retreats. I would sort of try to sit every day and I started having that stuff happen within the first year, you know, sooner even. And even like periods of just feeling like more settled would be happening within a few weeks, you know, or, and sometimes even I think in my first sit, so, because, so what happens, you have to understand is meditation, it's like there's ups and downs. You go through these terrains of working hard, breaking through, having a really, really hard time and everything sucks again. And then the, third, the fourth stage of equanimity, where where things, what I was just describing, you're really feeling present and it's not exotic. It's just the beautiful ordinary. And over a lifetime of practitioner, you're going to go up and down, cycle through those terrains. Like over your whole life, you're going to go through those terrains. But you'll also go through them over a few months. You'll go through them over a single sit. So it's like fractal. So even though the practice is up and down, there's like a width dimension that comes into it. Like, and this is the equanimity piece. This is the forked terrain piece. This is the sense of like being present. It's not about flat lining. You learn to be more and more available with the ups and the downs. See, it's not, a, it's not an up or down proposition. Practice is a width proposition. It's not a, a two dimensional proposition. It's a three dimensional proposition. It's like being more available to both the tough times and the good times. And, and learning more and more not to have a preference for either one. Now, that really started to kick in for me maybe six or seven years into my practice. And even then, though, it comes and goes. As I talk about it now, I can feel myself in the zone of it. I can really feel it very immediate and true. But then I'll, I might, you know, get worried about stuff and get stressed and I'm back to being contracted and I can kind of lose that perspective. So I, I kind of go in and out, but there are someone like my teacher, he doesn't really go out so much anymore. <laughs> so he's been doing it long enough. He, he'll still will go out. He'll say that he goes, the small self comes back, if you want to call it that, your, the, the, the small self of your concerns, your worries, your preoccupations, that it'll, it'll come back, especially when you're tired or you're really being triggered or you're having a, theres a lot of physical pain. You know, the normal stuff that creates contraction in the mind-body system but the the momentum of the of the emptiness or whatever you want to call it the fullness there''s it's paradoxical the the naturalness the ordinariness the the perfection the, the sacredness the just the, the isness of reality I know all these words sound like bogus but, but that that just is so such a default for him that it very it just reasserts itself so that that maybe explains a little bit about the progression so and and also you never know who you are as a practitioner you might be thinking that you're the most the worst practitioner that you're the most hopeless case and guess what you do a weekend retreat and you have this phenomenal breakthrough and you're never the same after frankly because that can happen too you can be seeming like the most screwed up person and bang because this thing is really weird how it works we can say that we want to i want to say oh it's like you build up muscles step by step workout by workout in this nice linear progression because that is true, but then there's this whole other side to it, which is just completely weird and more quantum, like you just don't know what's going to happen when, and it it's, like it's like trying to predict where Aurora Borealis is going to suddenly go. If you ever watched Aurora Borealis, it just suddenly is somewhere different in a different configuration. And so you could have this sudden breakthrough without any seeming any background, and, and your life can be different. And that's no joke. I've seen it happen many times.
0: I've never seen it that way because I, I I often go back to the physical practice w- versus mental practice analogy in my head, and but with a physical practice you can make leaps, but to make exponential leaps you're you're constrained by the physical body, right? I mean maybe like unless you're LeBron James or or someone like that, <laughs> but with the mind it's just it's it's not it's not physical, right? So it's. I can't yeah. even describe. It. It's like the aurora borealis example. Like you could shift the whole thing with whether you're, a, you know, seventy year old or a forty year old, whether you're LeBron James or, or K. He physically. Exactly, and
1: no one knows what mind stuff is. Nobody knows. I wrote a book about consciousness. The best thinkers on the planet have no idea. There's good theories about how it relates to brain activity, and there's obviously an intimate relationship, but the actual raw material of first-person experience is deeply mysterious and it gets more mysterious there's just one thing i guess, i feel like there's something i should say because it's really important and that is the most important single quality you can bring to a practice is one you could bring to any moment and it's the super juice and so you can bring to it to this moment right now and everyone listening to this podcast can bring to it and it's it's called equanimity And what it means is, can you relate to the words that I'm saying, the the sound, the sound wave, as something that's just moving through you? So there's no rigidity in your body, no bracing, just this complete softening and opening to experience, not fighting with it. That, like there's an adjustment that every human being makes all the time in their life that's not exotic, that is about becoming a little bit more present, becoming a little bit more open. So I would even like invite you to try to do that right now in relationship to my words, to the background sound and hum of traffic or whatever's around you, to your own thoughts and sensations. You make this tiny little shift of kind of allowing and letting them be there. That little shift, that allowing quality is the zero point. It's where all change happens. It's where old patterns get are less likely to be perpetuated that, that patterns that are serving you it's where new updates come in in terms of more healthy patterns but it's also in that moment where the world presents itself to you as what it really is which is a, a very beautiful thing you know the mystery of it the fullness and so all you need to do for a practice in in theory and in practice <laughs> is just connect to that all day just remember come back to it remember come back to it if you did just this for a practice, it would serve you so hugely in your life. It will you will race down the up or up that hockey stick, you know? It's just you just need to remember to do it. And that's the hard part because I mean, mindfulness sati means remembering. Remember to do that. Come back to that. That right there, man, that is like I wish someone told me that at the
0: beginning. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you're saying that Clearly you're a meditation teacher because you got the magic with the words, but I, you know, I was I was like watching the clock on this podcast and I'm like thinking about my next question and my breathing is shallow. And as you were saying that, I just kind of dropped into this, like, like I felt my heart rate go down. And that's the crazy thing about meditation is that you can do that on command. I, I can't but I see a world where I can (laughs) and I've tasted it and damn, it feels fucking good to know that that's possible.
1: It's incredibly empowering. It's incredibly empowering because you're, again, it's another paradox. On the one hand, you realize that you have so much more control over how to regulate yourself over how you exist. And to the point that it's like, it's so poignant and moving and beautiful that that is there. But the irony is, the more control you develop, the more you trust in letting go of that control, and it, it's the same New Age sounding bunk that every person will tell you. But I tell you, it's so true. There's a sense in which, when you let go, then you you free up resources in yourself to be able to make better decisions, in, in and in a weird way, for the world to be able to kind of meet you halfway. And and there is definitely something that happens—the more magical side of stuff. I mean, I where the more you kind of just trust and let go in things, there can be a sense in which the world's coming forward to meet you in a new way. And that, and it's very, it is beautiful, man. When it's happening, you, you, you know, I don't, there's no words for it other than just like you feel so grateful to be here. And and what do you want to do? You just want to spread the love. You just want to help out bring other people into that place and do it in a way that's woke. That's like, that's paying attention to the social, justice and environmental issues of the day, you know, and, and that supports you as well as other people.
0: Let's use a real case study. Cause I, I ran over here from a meeting and in the meeting, someone made a, a kind of, I was, it wasn't passive aggressive, but it was like an indirect co- criticism that I took personally in this meeting. And so my meditative side is like, kind of let go, just breathe through it. But then there's my other side that's like, if you do that, do you then not fix the thing that you were being critiqued for? It's a will you get soft question.
1: Yeah. So, okay. The the, the answer to this is, first of all, you have to be comfortable with the paradox of this. Everyone eventually comes to this question. And the answer is they're both right. And so how can they both be right? That's the paradox. It's like the best line, the best expression of it, or the most famous expression of it was a quote from Suzuki Roshi, a famous Zen teacher, Zen mind, beginner mind. He basically said, I'm paraphrasing a bit, everything is perfect, but things could always get a little bit better. So you have the absolute and the relative at the same time. So you could say that meditation is one, there's a kind of absolute strategy of allowing yourself to experience that moment. It includes feeling your own irritation, feeling the whole thing, letting that happen. And the more you open to that and let that be there, the less suffering that will create in you, it'll move through you. But then there's the more relative side of like, you know what, maybe it's now, it's time to say something to that person. And, uh, you know, maybe there's a, you need to draw a boundary, you know, maybe you need to, and so you have to be, basically kind of have both those positions at the same time. And, and maybe it's just thinking about sometimes there's one response. I think the equanimity response is always the response you want to have, because it's always about opening to experience. The hard part about this is people get confused because I think equanimity means being flat or something yeah, push like that. Pushover. Pushover. Equanimity just means you're letting yourself have the experience of your own annoyance, your own anger, your own happiness, or whatever. You're just letting that happen. You're saying that's already happening. I'm going to let it happen. It's a relationship to your experience. It's not a relationship to objective reality. So I could, I could be watching Donald Trump, for example, if I was someone who didn't like Donald Trump, on television, I could be feeling all of these feelings about how I don't like him. You know, equanimity is allowing yourself 100% to have the experience of not liking what's going on. It is not the same as saying that you're objectively, you don't want to objectively change the fact that he's in office. (laughs) You know what I mean? But what it does is it allows you to free up the energy to then make a change when you need to change it. Instead of wasting all the energy stewing out about how you can't stand Donald Trump and the world is going to hell in a handbasket. You, you just are mature enough to say, this is actually what's going on. You allow yourself to to feel the truth of the, the fucked up, horrific nature of some of that stuff, if that's what you're feeling. And then in the act of allowing that, all the energy that you were using, fighting that can be freed up to actually make a decisive action that you need to just to do the thing, you need to say the thing you need to say to, to create the initiative you need to create. Is that making, making sense?
0: Yeah. And I, I love this concept of useless energy or wasting energy. It reminds me of a a hockey player, Jarmi Yager. I think he's like one of the best. I'm not a big hockey person, but he's one of the best hockey players of all time. And he played till he's like the Kobe Bryant of hockey played until his mid 40s. And he said as he got older, he would see where the puck was going. He had like a much clearer understanding of where it was going, and he'd watch the young guys kind of like zig and zag and chase it and all that, but he would be able to just glide right to it, and he'd have the exact same output as the young guys on just a fraction of the energy. And to go back to my example, I think that it could have triggered in me this, like, who does this person think they, they are, and I'm going to prove them wrong, and and, and like. First of all, it's unclear. I I, even as I described it, I was like, I said passive aggressive. It might not even have been true. (laughs) That's the first thing, right? Um, That's good to admit. (laughs) The second thing was that this like rage, like I'm gonna prove them wrong, like that's not effective, right? And that's a waste of energy versus like taking a deep breath, like okay, what could I possibly, you know, how could I possibly done something wrong? Let's think about it, and then tomorrow let's fix it.
1: Absolutely. You know, I love that you use the that analogy of the hockey player because Wayne Gretzky used to say something similar. And I, I think when I think about how the practice matures, I think it basically the way I describe it is that it accelerates the aging gracefully gradient. That it's a lot about that energy efficiency that I mean, you can age badly or you can age well. There's lots of ways to do to there's certainly lots of ways to age badly. But when you look at the people who seem to be aging well, I don't mean what they look like in terms of their skin and stuff. I mean, maybe, but I'm talking more about the, their, their demeanors, their manners, how happy they are. They almost universally, they develop this capacity to let go, to relax, to see the bigger picture, to choose their battles, to have this more affable stance to how things are unfolding around them. It's like an old lady sitting at the park watching the kids play. The kids fall down. They get up. You're kind of just smiling. You're, you're, it's like you're seeing the big picture more. A practice brings that maturity into the prime of your life so it's you don't only get to experience it in the fruit of your of your wisdom of your becoming more of an elder you get to experience it more and more in the in the middle of your life where you have a ton of energy and so those people that by the way have that combination they are the world's great change makers that's the luther kings that's the gandhi's you know, that's the the famous Catholic mystics from the Catholic, Catholic traditions, like St. Teresa, these people, it's like they developed that capacity early in the middle of their life, when they were still in their power. And that's when they, and they, and they were thus able to make huge changes around them. They are incredible reformers and revolutionaries, far more than anyone who's much more on a strivey, angry, got to fight every moment is ever going to get anything done. You know, you can't even compare the two. It's like, It's another level of human, basically, not to reify it too much. I mean, everyone's got that level in them waiting to happen. But if you think you're going to get there from your anger and your violence and your pushiness, like you're deluded, you know.
0: I'm glad you brought up the age thing because here's the crazy thing. I talked about this on an old podcast, but there's a study about these happiness studies that basically say that happiness troughs from age 20 to 60. And it's just this flat deadline for, you know, the pr- prime 40 years of your life. And then it starts to spike. And some of the happiest people are 70-year-olds. And 70-year-olds, the crazy thing is, because I'm a I'm a math, and actuarial guy, like 70-year-olds, the U.S. life expectancy is 78, blended. And so they've, you know, actually, statistically, they've got eight years to live. And they don't feel rushed. They don't have time scarcity. And when you ask them, I, I once, I'll i send this to you because I collected what the, there's all these studies and I just took all the like one-liners of what why they're so happy. And it's exactly what you said, the ability to emotionally self-regulate. They don't get angry. They don't hold grudges. They are more realistic about their expectations and their place in their own tribe. It's like, it's pretty simple stuff, right? But But again, you could see in that, in the meeting story where it's like, wait a minute, you're threatening my tribe. Like, hey, hey, you're threatening my livelihood. Then all of a sudden the chatter just, it consumes you.
1: I would love to see that, you know, definitely send it to me. You know, I, I, I do want to say though, that within Hindu traditions, they often talk about that you first lead the life of a householder and then you really move into the life of more practice. And, you know, just to honor the fact that when in the middle age of life is intense, And there is a lot of work. There's a ton of pressures with the family, with work and all this stuff. It is harder to find those qualities under that kind of intensity than it is when you don't feel like you need to prove yourself in the same way anymore. It's honorable to be in the the, the challenges in a big way. I would just say that, you know, you can lighten your load. You don't have to set yourself to be a Buddha. You can lighten your load by doing just being a little bit more intentional about how you are in the world and exploring a practice. And doing it in community. You know, having a group of, like, just like the community you're building through this podcast, a bunch of people who basically are, like, they're real about their lives. They're, they with, they're in the shit dealing with real stuff where you can just sort of talk about those challenges. You can explore practice together. That can make such a big difference in people's lives. And it's, and it's available, you know. Even if it's just once a week for an hour meeting somewhere, you know. And, if, and if it, even if it's just the practice is just five minutes a day being intentional about what's doing that can take the edge off things, you know, just to, in case people are listening and going, oh man, uh, 70 years, <laughs> I don't want to wait till I'm 70 to be happy. It's like, you know, it's just, there's ways of kind of bringing that in. It's just about making having the intention to do that and yep. taking some resources that you have and directing them in, in that direction.
0: I'll say like you and Dan's book is that's, that's a, it's, it's a great, Starting point, and, and I went through it, and and I have a meditation practice, and I was picking up elements that that I want to adapt and tweak, and just I've been meditating for three years, and it still feels really damn lonely. My wife meditates, so we can talk about it. We don't meditate together, but man, forty minutes by yourself, and then this thing that's like really becoming an important part of you, and not really, you know, that's why I got so excited to talk to you. I don't really have these conversations often.
1: Well, that's the great. I think that's the best part about a community is that it normalizes the whole weird behavior and it gives you a forum where you can actually talk about this stuff. And, and even just because people don't talk about it at large doesn't mean it isn't incredibly important, it is. So I have a, you know, people are into this, like I, there's a lot of, first of all, I know, I know you're in New York, there's a lot of great practice groups in New York. I also do something in Toronto called the Consciousness Explorers Club and it's, I'm trying to put together right now a set of resources that so, that are basically a startup guide. So anyone, anywhere can start their own sitting group And the CEC has a particular philosophy that it's been pretty successful in Toronto that's really about exploring, trying out different practices, doing relational and art practices, you know, having dance parties, whatever. There's a way in which we figured out that seems to work for kind of like young professional types who are like in the middle of it and who still want to be living life full tilt, you know. So I just offer that up there. You can check out the site or whatever. I'm soon within a few weeks. There'll be resources up there that you can download, and you can just take what you what's helpful for you and discard the rest. You know,
0: <laughs> amazing. And, and we'll definitely share all of that. And if you need help launching a New York chapter. There's definitely some people, myself included, that would be extremely ecstatic to Dude, you should do it. I'll help you, man. I'll mentor you. That would be really, really fucking cool. I wanted to confess to you something that I didn't really like about myself as I was doing research for this podcast. It has to do with ADD. You've talked about it on the podcast. And at first, you know, I think I've been one of I'm one of these people that, you know, has this shit together (laughs) and at first, when I hear about ADD, I'm always like, "Oh, it's like it's an overprescribed drug, and like you know, people need to deal with their technology issues, and like they should meditate." But like, is this like really this? You know, I, I just kind of like poo pooed it because it didn't really impact me. I had no personal connection to it. And then you know, the honesty that that you shared shared in your story made me just just realize that I was just being a complete dick and ignorant about a topic that I didn't really know much about that, you know, even through all my Wokey meditation, I was like extremely judgmental and, and close-minded about it. So I just want to, I just want to confess that. And I want to thank you for through your openness. You have, it's, it's like what we discussed that like trickle down compassion. It's like, okay, like I'm It will change the way I show up in the world with people who have those, who have that kind of suffering. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you for that. I have an article on my website called "Coming Clean" about our mental health challenges that talks a little bit about that. You know, I think that I think it's very common actually. I think a lot of people are a little bit impatient with that diagnosis, and it probably is overdiagnosed. But everything and and when it comes to human personality and Human attentional capacities—they're all on continuums. So that, that includes the capacity to pay attention. And one of the basic nutshell skills in meditation that is available to anybody is, in theory, is this: is concentration, which is you're able to pay attention to one thing. Your mind wanders, you come back. Concentration states lead to flow states, to states of of being in the zone, of being absorbed pleasurably in an activity. If you can, you imagine not being able to enter those states where you never get the satisfaction of feeling like something is completing itself, where you're able to make a deep connection with somebody. Cause that can sometimes be the case with some people who really have extreme ADD. They're constantly skipping on the surface and they can't ever get anything done. And it's a serious nightmare for people. Like I see these people and i went, I used to go to an ADD support group at uh, the center for addictions and mental health in Toronto. And, I mean, these are people who are suicidal. They're so despairing because they're always letting people down around them. You know, they're, they can't find any lasting pleasure or satisfaction in their life. And so it, it, it's sort of like a Buddhist parable. You know, it's like they have an extreme version of what a lot of us have in little ways. And they also have particular gifts. They have, so there's good sides to it as well. But, you know, one of the things you get with practice is you start to develop a lot of empathy for all the different ways people suffer that's one form, but there's others that are just as crippling and challenging. And until we know them through a friend or through a book, then we, it just remains abstract to us, you know? And so I I think the big picture of this that I'm really excited by is, I like the fact that meditation is getting big, but what I really am excited by is how people are beginning to lift up the taboo and talking about mental health issues and talking about the fact that, you know, there are ways, there are interventions that can help us and we can share best practices with each other.
0: When you are on Joe Rogan's podcast, he was kind of pushing back a little bit the way, the way kind of old K would have pushed back. It's like, well, why don't you, why don't you work out when you get into these states? Why don't you, he was pushing back against medicating against it. Yeah. Can you share that exchange a bit with our, with our listeners and how, how you felt through that?
1: Super. Yeah, very happy to. So in addition to the ADD, I have some mood dysregulation. So I don't really know what's going on. I'm, I'm learning about it still. It's sort of an ongoing thing. You know, here I am this meditation teacher and meditator and I've been a beneficiary of many of the benefits of practice, but I still have my challenges, you know, in a big way, including this getting in these really hypomanic states where I get super, even in this talk, when I get excited about something, you know, I suddenly I'll get super psyched and I'll cut you off or something. And I feel like what a loser. What was I doing that? Because the energy comes up so strong, you know, and so the thing with practice is you're learning to be equanimous with greater and greater arisings of intensity. So I can be pretty equanimous with most of stuff, but I have these wild energy surges that are really hard, just like, say, someone stuck you with a knife and it really hurt, that are really hard to manage, you know. So I was just talking about that with Joe a little bit, and he was interested in that. And, but I was saying that the person I talked to said, you might want to consider medication. You know, so lithium is traditionally a way in which it, so it's a, it may be a kind of bipolar thing that I have. It may not be. There's some controversy in the literature around how to, God, this stuff is so controversial. When you get into it, you realize there's no agreement. Half people say, if they say bipolar is actually personality disorder, or this thing over here, or it's actually more linked to ADD. And, you know, it's just. But this one, I had one assessment. The person said, "Okay, you seem to be have some of these these bipolar qualities. Medication might help you. Medication meaning lithium." And I was like, "Okay," and I haven't done it yet, and I'm not sure if I will. But it it was something I was considering, thinking, "Well, maybe because because that causes a lot of suffering. Maybe." So he was saying, "Well, why would you do that when you have other ways to do it?" Which is, I think, a really good thing to push back on, you know, and. And, and it's true for me, like physical exercise, like hitting a punching bag, going on a bike ride, going for a swim, going surfing, those can really help it, but they don't always help it, you know, and sometimes, and and not only that, when you're in those places, you're in a sort of delusional place where you're, you can fuck up your life. Like I used to get in those places and send all these crazy emails out or I'd shoot off my mouth and say crazy shit and I'm just not connected to what's the appropriate response in the moment. So I can see there being, for some people, medication can be very helpful. I know people who say that it's absolutely worth it. For me, I'm still on the fence because I, I feel like I can probably regulate it without it. But I'm, I'm open to exploring it, is what I was saying on the podcast. And, and yeah, so he was pushing back. And it was it, it was interesting because that whole podcast was very, you know, I felt I was very kind of like quiet and Canadian at first. I didn't really say anything. And then when I feel like I realized, oh, yeah, this is you just got to really be super this is a super testosterone heavy (laughs) ball heavy crowd you got to really be out there so I just started bringing in more but I felt that was a little bit intense in that in that podcast I didn't get to be there's a part of me that's very gentle and loving and I wish I could have brought that out more but I didn't feel like that was a safe place to be like that you got to be very tough guy and put it out like this and so I don't know if it was a good podcast or not but I appreciated the way he pushed back on that though and that was my favorite part actually that whole thing was that going into it all like that.
0: I got to say, I thought it was really fun. I did not expect it to go there. And it was, I mean, the intensity because I don't listen to his podcast often. And I really, you know, he he does kind of embody a lot of our our listeners here where it's like, step out of your comfort zone as often as you can and like be really, really dedicated to something and and research the crap out of stuff and like show up every single day. And I think that's like, really inspiring and, and the amazing thing about him is he lives it, like there's no doubt in my mind that for he, him, he never takes a break from it. I was actually curious, like, cause I used to have a lot of that energy and there's a part of me that is less, that strives less. And so what I wanted to ask you, this concept of leaving your comfort zone, so i used to seek out these insane challenges like i once did a thousand burpees in 24 hours and got ill for seven days like just I, for no reason just to prove to myself too. yeah just to prove to myself that i was crazy i, I don't know that i could like This weird thing with burpees like whenever someone like challenged me it, i would just do a lot and be like well Whatever that person whatever that thing person challenged me on, well, I just did a hundred burpees and so I could do anything. You know, it's like this weird way. But that was my way of coping without meditation, right? But but I do believe in this growth of leaving like your comfort zone. But I've been personally, I just have sought it less. Or let me let me let me rephrase. I'm a bit more discerning about it because I found that when I would seek discomforts uncomfortable situations, stressful situations, it was from a place of fear. And I don't want to pursue those paths. I don't want to be uncomfortable because I'm afraid of something. If it's a place out of intentional growth, like, oh, I would like to get stronger. I would like to push my, you know, I would like to see what it feels like when, you know, to run this much. And if I'm really honest with myself, then that that it's really from a place of curiosity. And I won't beat myself up if I don't succeed in the thing. That's, that's how it shifted. But I know that this crowd is very much a kind of push yourself out of your comfort zone crowd. How do you reconcile that with like being okay with, with what you have?
1: I think that they're virtually the same thing. <laughs> so I think I completely agree with pushing yourself out of the comfort zone. I mean, I've done that my whole life too. And I think that, but the the meditative piece of it is can you be equanimous with the discomfort can you be present with that challenge it's not pushing yourself into a comfort zone and then just gritting your teeth and barely noticing it because you're just trying to get through it well that's actually that's the coward's path the really the brave person is slows the whole thing down and says can i actually like a warrior open myself up to the discomfort of this sensation this physical the physical intensity the emotional intensity And there is nothing more intense than our fear, than our judgments about ourselves, than our shame. That is that is hardcore badass practice. Like learning how to actually face the edge of that. That is your true edge, by the way. It's like you're you know basic meditate. The metaphor I often use is that you think about a mansion. It's like we're born in a mansion. All the whole mansion is our inheritance. But room by room, we start to shut it up because we're afraid to go in this room because we don't want to look at this because we don't like this or this person hurt us. We don't want to see them or this kind of thing. We don't want to do this. You know, we just like we're actually closing down our experience until we find this little tiny safe place under the stairs where we can hang out. And practice is about saying, fuck that. I'm reclaiming the mansion. Like room by room, you got to go in and face each of those things, including your fears, including... But we had this other weird idea we just keep we're we're underneath the stairs and you're having and we're having extreme experiences under the stairs but you're not growing <laughs> as a person. You know, it's like get, have your extreme experiences in the mansion and then how see see how awesome they are.
0: Yeah. Oh, man. Dude, that's fucking incredible. That is not only that but it also ca- the the wealth aspect because it's a mansion, it captures the abundance that we're born into as humans, right? And the beauty. Like, not the physic, not the monetary wealth of it, but, but it's just like, it's beautiful. Well, like, human life is a beautiful thing. And as we shut all those doors, they become smaller, smaller, scarier, you know, claustrophobic. And then, and then that's it.
1: <laughs> yeah. But I mean, but what Joe would say is the, you know, the do it, pushing yourself to an edge in the kind of those extreme sports way, that also is a deep practice. You know, it's about, but it the practice part of it is facing the fear part of it. Like, and facing the fear means facing the fear, actually opening to it, being curious about where it is, feeling it, letting it, because it's only then that the fear will actually start to metabolize. So the that zero point, that equanimity that I tried to point people to earlier is the place where we meet what's going on in our experience. And if we're open enough, we basically, it's like an exorcism. We can release the energy of that pattern, that pattern of fear, that pattern of anxiety. It's like... It's like freeing, it's like free the little birds.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Jeff, man, you're the realest meditation teacher ever. It's inspiring because you're human just like all of us. And meditation teachers, at least the the PR campaign, the pre existing PR campaign, or prior one was around these like, you know, everything is perfect Zen, which is not, it's just the way it was represented. And to know that it's like, yeah, it's just like another guy in Toronto that's dealing with a lot of the shit that we deal with. Um, <laughs> totally. is, dealing uh, with it badly sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> it's really special. And I think it, I, and I, th- I know that it advances what you and I both care about so deeply is the advancing of this conversation and the, the deepening of these practices across our, our communities and the world more broadly. Now, well, thank you, bro. I appreciate
1: it. That is definitely something I'm, I'm interested in, and I love that you're interested in it too.
0: <laughs> awesome. And so, where can we go learn more about Conscious Explorers Club, the book? Just tell us where.
1: So, I would say the first resource is so I started this nonprofit called the Consciousness Explorers Club about seven years ago. And now it's this burgeoning community in Toronto of awesome switched-on meditators. Meditate, celebrate, activate. That's our tagline. So it's if you go to cecmeditate.com, you can check out all the stuff. There's, we're trying to create more and more resources for people who are non-local. So there's guided meditations there. Like I said, I'm soon going to have practice resources up there so you can start your own group and what that looks like. There'll be scripts and examples and how to kind of frame stuff. And there's articles and things and we're a whole community of and if you're in Toronto you can come by every Monday night we meet although I'm not around I'm actually in Costa Rica at the moment <laughs> but I'll be back in a few weeks and my website's jeffwarren.org there's a lot of articles and stuff there a lot of free meditations I'm trying to you know add more stuff to that site and beef it up and figure out how to make a living doing this because I love doing it and including working on a book about how to teach meditation the idea of this book is to try to empower other people to think of themselves as being able to do that because it's like basic mental hygiene is, is that's how I see it and it's like as important as diet and exercise and trying to kind of demystify the specialness of teachers you know so my website, jeffwarren.org, and in there, there's a link to the Dan and our book uh, and Carly's book. Carly Adler's the third, third co-writer, and it's called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And that's like really practical, straight-ahead stuff. It doesn't really get into some of the more mystical stuff, because Dan's always trying to rein me back. But I do want to write up, trying to figure out how to write a book that articulates some of that stuff in a way that's
0: just kind of straight-ahead and not
1: new-agey. It just speaks to the, the true parts of it,
0: you know?
1: So that's some stuff.
0: Awesome. And we'll put all that in in our show notes as well. Jeff, man, this has been awesome. I know that our community's paths will cross again. Thank you very much.
1: Hey, the pleasure was mine. Thanks for having me on, bud.
0: Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. For more information on all things Rad, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.